0: We implemented many ITIL processes. The world's most
1: practiced method for project management. ItIL has been um, a catalyst in my career. Hundreds of thousands of people with a Prince 2 qualification. I'm saying ITIL help organizations be more successful.
2: The Axolos Podcast, bringing best practice directly to you.
3: Hi everyone and welcome to this uh, special episode of the Axelos Global Best Practice Podcast. Uh, this is the first episode in a series that we're doing on creative professionals and Uh, then further examining how we can take those aspects of creativity and apply them to IT and IT service management. And uh, the theme for today's show is photography. And I'm going to be interviewing a a very old friend of mine, um, a really good pal who lives in uh, Philadelphia now, although we met when we both lived in New York. Uh, His name is Raj Sharma. Before we get into it, um, I just want to say on a personal note, Raj is probably... The most courageous person I know, because he was in IT um, back in New York. He was he was working at the time, I think, with WebMD or, or some a uh, company like that. And you know, one day he said, "I'm really not enjoying this. I want to be a photographer." And he just packed it up. He started his own uh, photography business, which is thriving. But. That is possibly one of the most courageous decisions I've seen anyone make. Uh, Certainly, I probably wouldn't have the kind of guts it takes to start a business off the ground like that, especially in a domain that I'm not familiar with or or inexperienced with. So having said that, Raj, welcome to the show. Um, How is the photography business these days and where can people find more about your photography business?
0: Hi, Akshay. Uh, it's been a while since we've spoken, so it's a pleasure to kind of reconnect, um, I um, th- and thank you for having me, first and foremost. Um, the photography business is, I mean, especially in my line of work, which is mainly lifestyle and wedding photography, it's, it's as you know, COVID has definitely posed challenges, so it's definitely been, uh, the last year has been very challenging, but um, you can find some of my work on Instagram, which is where I usually am most active. Um, I have two accounts. Uh, one is at R Sarma Photos, which is really my lifestyle and wedding work, and there's R S Travel Photos, which is a lot of my travel uh, work and journalism work. Which is uh, so these are the two accounts where you should be able to find most of my uh, portfolio, so to speak. Awesome, and. Um... Uh, Oh, and one one thing. uh, By the way, I I moved uh, from Philadelphia. I don't live in Philadelphia anymore. All right.
3: Well, well, it's just how much (laughs) we stay in touch then. So so which part of of the states are you in these days?
0: Well, we're actually back in the New York, New Jersey area. We're uh, in Hoboken, New Jersey, so just um, across the pond. Um, And uh, so not in Manhattan anymore like we used to, but, um, you know, so we've been in uh, Hoboken, I would say, uh, for about three and a half years now, since twenty seventeen. Yeah. Okay. It's been a while since we've gone
3: up. <laughs> <there>. All right. <laughs> um so so let's talk about photography then. Move swiftly on. Um, what what were sort of the influences that you had that led you down this, this path of, of you know photography in general, but also what made you want to be a professional
0: photographer? Uh, sure. It's um, you know, uh, Firstly, I appreciate, you know, um, your comment earlier about, um, you know, the courage that it takes. Uh, Thank you. Um, At the time, it didn't really seem that way. But, you know, after speaking with a lot of friends and having had similar feedback, I sometimes have to go back and think about that decision. Um, And it, it really comes down to, you know, how much you feel about what you're doing at the time and what are some of the things that you... Um, feel you're not accomplishing and you would like to accomplish. And that applies to whether it's your day job or something like photography that you want to pursue. Um, I think for me, the influence really, you know, I've I've always been very enamored by photography. I've been, um, I I would say it it took me a while to call myself a photographer, but I've been a photographer for a very long time because I've always seemingly had a camera with me. but when it came time to really hang up my boots with um the corporate world and uh, get into sort of like the creative uh world and become a professional in that aspect i i would say it came from a few different inspira- you know inspirations like i saw um i i was reading a lot of um blogs online which uh made me feel like it's it's probably a good time to um break the routine so to speak so i had been at my position at my corporate job for 10 years nearly and i think i had been reaching sort of like the long end of the rope you know just doing the same thing over and over again not finding it very um um insightful or exciting and but at the same time photography for me and this is about uh a few years ago, right? Like I at, at the time I was really getting more confident in what I was doing creatively. So I felt that this was a good time to break that routine and um, take inspiration from some of the photographers I was following online and see if I could really put that to test. And most importantly, I thought it was probably gonna be a good segue into some level of entrepreneurism. And I, I felt like I didn't have much uh to lose really just just the the opportunity itself to try and see what this uh, looks like so yeah that I I would say uh, unfortunately it wasn't like one aha moment so to speak but um, a few different you know things that came into play and really culminated in that decision and and having inspiration and encouragement from some of my close friends and family was very helpful all right um
3: and so it's it's been I think um what, about a, a, nearly a decade probably since you started that uh, photography business or moving in that direction?
0: Yeah. Um, so I think, uh, you know, obviously I started it on a very semi-professional level. I, I was still working corporate and uh, doing photography gigs on the side. Um, 10 years ago, I think, is when I picked up my first professional camera, so to speak, you know, investing money in uh, equipment, as you say, and it was, uh, if you think about it, like at the time that investment was not that much, it was just about, I would say 800 bucks, but for me, it was a lot of money. And, you know, especially when you are investing in a, a hobby or something that you don't think is a full on profession that earns you money. Um, but yeah, in the last, so it took, I started doing it 10 years ago and, um, it was in 2016 that I, uh, decided to quit my job. Um, and I felt, Confident enough that I sh- could pursue this as a career and see where it goes. So, looking back um, uh,
3: at that decade, you know, what do you think is the best thing about that that you've experienced being a, a professional photographer? Or uh, it doesn't have to be an event, but it could be an emotion. It could be anything. But what uh, could you share, perhaps, what you find is the best thing about being a professional photographer? And, and equally, I think, what, what's the worst thing about being a professional photographer?
0: yeah sure um so i think this the the best thing really is something that doesn't really apply to just being a professional photographer i would say it really just comes from taking the decision to do something on your own um and that was that feeling of excitement a feeling of um almost diving into the unknown and having a sense of adventure um and almost like uh, having this thrill of figuring out things on your own without someone having, uh, you know, breathing down your neck or, um, you know, talking to you about KPIs and OKRs and reports and all of those things. So it was suddenly, uh, the world was my oyster. I could pretty much do this any way I wanted. So I think that was really the sense of independence really was something that, um, was, uh, the most enthralling piece of this all. And um, I, I I really, it took me a few months to kind of get my act together or my ducks in a row, as they say, uh, to figure out how I wanted to proceed with this. Because I, um, while I had made that decision, I really didn't know how to go about it. And I think that's when I would say reality set in. And that was probably the most challenging piece of it. So uh, really the first year of... Um, learning how to be a professional photographer who draws income from this was the most challenging piece because you you have to sort of um, understand, you have to unlearn a lot of things that you learn in your corporate life, right? You learn to kind of expect this paycheck just hitting your bank account every couple of weeks. Uh, you expect to just walk into work and having a structure and knowing exactly some of the things that you have to accomplish um you have goals that are set for you right and for lack of a better way of putting it and somehow i think when you branch out of that all of this is now up to you so you could just spend your day doing nothing listening to music and watching tv or you figure out how you kind of go about that and so i would say that first year was definitely the most challenging piece of this journey for me because i had to literally start from scratch um you know start taking notes by talking to people reach out to people and ask them to give me some time like literally say like hey give me 10 minutes and these are sometimes cold calls that i would make to photographers that i used to find on instagram and be like can you give me 10 minutes and talk to me about how you do this you know just give me pointers and i would reach out to 20 people and maybe one person would respond and that 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 was sometimes demotivating but it also taught me a lot um so uh, yeah that, that so i would say those, those are the two sort of like extremes of making a change like this sure
3: so so let's let's talk about the, the the before the shoot or the day of the shoot i mean you've talked about uh the the portraiture uh that you do portraiture you do wedding <clears> photography uh, and i think you know as we were chatting in, in preparation for this call we a lot of things were going through my mind, um, especially as far as wedding photography is concerned. So we may focus a bit on that, but if you want to draw examples from portraiture or travel or, or so on, you know, that that's absolutely fine too. But how how do you start that, that project? How do you start that, um, the engagement, if you will, when somebody reaches out to say, would you be able to take photos of my family or take photos of uh, my wedding? Um, how do you, what's your starting point for that creative process once all the paperwork's done?
0: Sure. Um, that's a very good question, actually. I think, um, you know, a lot of people, especially like us, you know, we we are so indoctrinated into the process of, um, you know, having a sort of like structure around things and going by sort of like the technical aspects of how something needs to be pursued and accomplished and I think that's what I was talking about when it comes to unlearning a lot of things. You have to unlearn those aspects um, to some extent when you are approaching uh, a project which uh, touches upon something which is very emotional as well as creative. Because, And when I say emotional, it's emotional for the person for whom you're doing this. And it's creative uh, for both you and the person involved, your client. Um, I remember when you and I met in London a few years ago, you actually were like, "I, you would never be a." Able to do wedding photography. Uh, And and the truth is, I never saw myself as a wedding photographer as well. Um, When I started this journey, I wanted to be a traveling um, photojournalist. And wedding photographer actually turned out being a wedding photographer turned out to be the perfect segue to learning how to do those as well. Um, In terms of process, I would say the first thing you have to do when you speak to a potential client is. You have to really have a conversation with them, which steers them away from looking at this as some kind of a business transaction. Um, So one of the things that I always try to do is talk to my potential clients about what taking these photographs actually means to them Um, and, and kind of really direct them away from the transactional aspect of it. Although there is money involved, you know, there is cost and they are going to be paying me. I try to put them in touch with the reason why they're doing this. And it helps both of us as a client and as a photographer, because if you're not in touch with the reason why these photographs are being taken, then neither of you will ever be completely invested in the outcome. You know, if, if a client sees this as a business transaction, they're only going to be looking at the bottom line and they they that'll show in the photographs. If you are looking at your client as a business transaction and trying to just make sure that they pay you as much money as you can get out of them, then you're not creatively invested in the project. So I think um, for me personally, I have learned that the the thing that I like to always do is um, connect with them emotionally, ask them questions like, um, especially if it's a wedding, um, things like, how did you meet your partner? Uh, What are some of the most memorable things you've experienced while you've uh, arrived at this? juncture where you've decided to get married? What has led you to this decision? Um, Can you talk to me a little bit about your families? And um, my initial meetings are literally all about this. I never talk to them about the cost. And in fact, even when uh, potential clients will email me asking me, hey, what are your rates? Can you tell me if I wanted a photo shoot, how much will it cost? I will do my best to really Um, have an opportunity to either meet them in person or talk to them on the phone to get this context. And I feel like having that context and having them think about it really, um, I would say, softens the whole transactional aspect of it. Because if you just dove right into the semantics of it's going to cost you $2,000 a day, that's like sticker shock. And immediately they're removed from that emotional aspect of it. So um, th- this is usually how I kind of um, handle when I have initial conversations with clients. So, so uh, it would be fair to say that you're, you're focused on
3: the, the sort of outcome that they're trying to drive towards and firmly setting themselves up for that outcome and then uh, secondarily talking about what it might take to get to that outcome, and I, I suppose that might lead to some sort of a negotiation between yourself and your customers about well, how much can be accomplished, and let's be realistic, and you know, this is this is you know, if we had I don't know Kardashian money, this is what we'd be able to accomplish. <laughs> but yeah. you know, and if you're like you know, two college students, you know, uh, this this is probably what you, you you're able to expect, right? Uh,
0: absolutely, and I think you know that's, that's a very good way of putting it, uh, across, right? Like you, you have to be realistic. You cannot, uh, while my goal is to emotionally connect them to this project and make sure they understand why they are taking these photos and why they've come to me in the first place. You cannot neglect the fact that at the end of the day, this does cost them money and it costs me time. Uh, we have to keep those things, um, in, in perspective. So, um, you want to make sure that you don't overpromise and underdeliver, and at the same time, you want to make sure that your client has very realistic expectations out of you as well. You don't want to want them to think that um, they're going to pay you uh, maybe fifty percent of what your normal fee would be and get two hundred percent of the outcome. Um, so uh, two things. a, I think keeping all the 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 expectation in line with the outcome, and most importantly, um, having them think more about the outcome itself so that they become a part of the process and, and don't just see this as them coming to me with a project and just expecting these amazing photographs to show up, right? Because they are part of the process. Um, and it, unless they're invested in it, I cannot give them the results that they need. So, right. uh, and, and in some ways I would say this even applies to our corporate life, right? Like you have to, I think when you talk to potential clients, you always want to show them what is uh, a possible outcome and have them be equally invested in that process as opposed to just being a consultant and creating miracles, so to speak. Oh, oh, absolutely. I mean,
3: uh, you know, I I worked as a consultant for many years and I I always... um, just like working with customers whose sole focus was the bottom line rather than the outcomes that they want to achieve. I mean, the bottom line would work itself out, but, you know, focusing on that first usually led to bad results, um, in fact, uh, here's a recommendation, book recommendation to our uh, listeners on, on, on this very topic. There's a really good book called Obliquity by um, a Financial Times columnist called John Kay. Um, so even if you don't listen to the second half of this podcast, take this bit away. Read that book. It's really good. It talks about how focusing on a very specific or singular metric will lead you to uh, actually underperform on that metric. So, as Raj was saying, if if my client's only focused on cost, they're probably not going to get the, the actual wedding photographs that they want, for example. Um, but let's talk about the day of the shoot itself. Mm-hmm. And, and this is something we were, we were also chatting about earlier. You know, you, and, and I think you mentioned this, it's, it's a very emotional day, right? Tensions are running high, emotions are running high. Uh, hopefully things will work out and, you know, there's not going to be tears, at, you know, sad tears at the end of the day. But... How do you approach photography in such a not just a a, an emotionally volatile environment, but even uh, you know, for example, that 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 glance between the bride and her father is that is that ephemeral, is that one-time thing? You know, it's there for like a second and then it's gone. How does those these sorts of things play into your creative process?
0: Yeah, uh, it's it's uh it's definitely something that you learn. It, there is a learning curve to it. Um, you know, I would say the most successful photographers, the wedding photographers I know aren't people that have become good just by reading books or um, you know, watching other people work. You have to be there. You have to screw up a few times. You have to, you know, make mistakes and that's how you learn. And that applies to so many things, right? Um, I would say there are certain things that you um draw inspiration from um i can go back to the first wedding that i shot which was uh, again it was actually back in 2016 which was my well uh, you know i'm lying uh, the first wedding i actually shot was back in 2010 it was one of my best friends wedding it was in india and i think um the second wedding that i shot was later on in 2016 when i quit my job but When I look back at both those weddings, I was subconsciously drawing from um, maybe my own instinct for constantly just keeping sort of like um, an eye on things and a pulse check, right? Uh, So on a day like this, which is filled with so many moving pieces, so many different people doing so many different things, it's, it's really up to you to keep your eye on the ball and make sure that you're not... Um, uh, you know, uh, losing focus, no pun intended. Uh, so <laughs> um you it it is it is overwhelming, and you have to constantly remind yourself that um you know you you should not be distracted because in a wedding environment, there are so many different things that are going on. There are different people, um there are emotional moments happening all around, you know, little conversations between friends, um small moments between family. Um, how do you, there's no way you can be in all places at um, the same time, right? So I think the way you kind of go, I have decided to go about it is um, I would really try and sort of create a shot list for myself. Um, And then I will kind of really figure out what are some of the things that I can accomplish realistically, right, as an individual. And if I feel like um, my shot list definitely needs me to bring more people on, I will do that. I will bring on a second photographer or I will bring on even a third photographer or a videographer. Um, I'll bring on an assistant. And this is really just about, again, going back to building the right team for yourself because setting yourself up for that success. So I think, you know, in the, and the reason I brought up those first two weddings that I shot, I did it all by myself. It was, I was doing everything. I was handling was my life. I was, it was exhausting. I I remember, Um, actually um, after my uh, first wedding that I did, my right hand was swollen because I was holding the camera pretty much the entire day. I had two cameras around me. I was holding a light stand. I was managing the, the, the strobes, all of it. Right. And I realized I'm, I'm being stupid. I need to make sure that I set myself up for success. And most importantly, um, make sure that I can get good photographs. And I'm not going to do that. So I think things that go into my mind on the day off, are really. it starts with a little bit of planning. I'll, I'll start with going back to photos that I've taken in a previous wedding. Um, so that gives me a sort of like a rough idea of the things that I want to accomplish. And it'll also give me a rough idea of the things I wasn't able to accomplish that. And then I will kind of be like, okay, these are some photos that I didn't get last time. I wanna try and get it this time. And I think really that's the process that I go through. Um, And and I always make sure that I uh, keep myself connected to a good network of photographers uh, and videographers, uh, just because these are people that you wanna build relationships and uh, make sure that when you ask them to kind of work with you on a project, that they can, not only do you know how good their work is, you know that they will deliver and most importantly there's synergy between you and them um so
3: i'll ask you a slightly controversial question uh probably the last question just because i'm trying to keep an eye on the clock as well right do you think in in your line of business that you really have to have the right gear and that's physical hardware as well as software so we're talking about the 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 best camera, the best lenses, the best filters, the um, you know the best photo editing software, um, et etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. Or do you think, well, no, creativity is in the mind of the photographer, it's in the eye of the photographer. so I'd rather have uh, you know I mean there's a there's a saying um, was it Napoleon um, said, I'd rather have a a lucky general than a good general kind of thing so would you uh, for yourself but also for the other others that you work with would you rather have people who are creative by nature or people with good
0: gear um i think you have to really know how to toe the line over there right Uh, i don't think gear in itself makes you a good photographer but at the same time if you're an amazing person with great creative instincts but with shitty gear you're not going to get anywhere so i think one cannot exist without the other you and, and it is up to you. And that's where you have to constantly teach yourself to be a better photographer. Um, you cannot let's say if you're growing your business and if you're becoming a better photographer, taking um, better photos um, and not just that, let's say you're signing on more clients. It would be foolish to not scale up accordingly and work with same, the same gear that you were shooting with maybe five years ago. And the reason I say that is uh, for a very simple reason, right? Like, let's say five years ago, the weddings that you were doing were probably smaller. Um, you know, you the, the expectations were lesser. You were charging less money. Um, so as a result, you may have produced good photographs, but you would have been challenged in terms of, like, how quickly the uh, the camera sort of, like, writes to its memory card or how quickly the strobe charges, those kinds of little minor details. Or were you using Lightroom or just iPhoto or whatever to edit your photos. Um, If five years down the road, you've grown your business, you have higher paying clients, and you're being stingy, and you haven't really moved along, what you'll find is that immediately, people who are paying higher, uh, for the most part, also know what quality to expect from you. And if you're not delivering at that quality, because you're kind of trying to save money or cost by not upgrading some of these things, you will immediately see that there are there are going to be repercussions for that. There will be a ripple effect. So I think a smart photographer or a smart professional will always find that healthy balance of um, making sure that you, you upgrade as and when needed. Uh, and on that token, I will say that you also have to really check yourself when you're just having uh, what they call gas, right? Like, which is gear acquisition syndrome, because you're just buying everything that's new and shiny, just because you're a uh, gear nerd, and you want to have the best and the most expensive stuff. You have to catch yourself when you're doing that as well, because it's not good for business. You don't always need a $10,000 camera with a $15,000 lens, you can easily get away with spending $5,000 for it. So, and, and I would say, you know, with technology today, I'm hard-pressed to find bad gear, right? Like our iPhones today take so much, such, so much better photos than maybe my DSLR from 10 years ago. Right. So it's, it's, it's really about striking that balance. And as long as, and, and again, that's also a trial and error, but as quickly as you learn to strike that balance, I think the the more successful you can uh, hopefully be. Well, that's pretty
3: awesome. Um... Let's wrap it up there because, um, uh, you know, uh, we, we've been talking for quite a while and I want to get to the segment where we apply, where we think about what you've said and we reflect that back uh, to, our, to our audience of IT and IT service management professionals. Um, so, Raj, for those of you, uh, for those of our audience who missed the um, social media plugs at the beginning, would you mind repeating that for them?
0: Uh sure. Um, so I my work is uh, my portfolio is spread across two Instagram accounts, which is where I'm most active. My wedding and lifestyle work is at R Sarma Photos, that is R-S-A-R-M-A Photos. And my uh travel and photojournalism is at R S Travel Photos. Um, so these are two of my most um active Instagram accounts, so feel free to follow me there. And um, I've been inactive the last few months, unfortunately, due to some um, life changes. But you know, I, I, in 2021, I hope to come back to it. So please uh, feel free to follow me. I'm sure you'll see some of my new work over there.
3: That's awesome. And um, uh, thanks for spending the time with us. And uh, to our listeners, after the break, we will come back and we'll talk about some of the things that Raj has said. So stick with us. Hi, everyone. Uh, this is the shout out segment of our podcast. And today I'd like to introduce you to Rina Brumbert Uh She works in New York and uh, she is our newest ITIL master. So uh, please join me in welcoming her to our uh, wider ITSM community. And um, she's going to share some thoughts and experiences with all of you and uh, tell you about uh, how to reach her if you're interested in getting in touch. So over to you, Rina.
4: Thank you for having me. I'm Reena. I currently work as an IT Service Management Program Manager for Department of Information Technology and Telecommunications in New York City. I'm responsible for overseeing the ServiceNow and IT Service Management implementation across the citywide agencies. I originally wanted to become a project manager just because, um, you know, watching other people, making things happen, standing up on application, making changes, it just seemed very appealing to me. And uh, what I was hoping for and what I ha- what happened, it's like two different things. Um, I used to work as an IT business analyst and in that role, I learned more about ITIL. That was back in 2019. And it's fair to say 12 years later, I'm still here sharing and practicing the ITIL framework, and I absolutely love what I do. So um, there have been many challenges, but a couple of them comes to mind. So one is kind of personal. As I was advancing my career and ITIL certification, especially from intermediate to an expert level, I experienced few failures. Um, I failed my managing across lifecycle exam twice. Obviously, as I reflect on this experience, I was partly ill-prepared and overwhelmed with bringing different title concepts into one exam. I was also working full-time and with family responsibility, it wasn't always easy to find time. I persisted and with each preparation, I dedicated more time and kept doing something different. In my last attempt where I passed my exam, I still remember I was, holi- um, I was on a holiday in New York City and I was roaming around in Times Square and an email popped in my inbox. Uh, it was from people's informing that my exam result was just published. Nervously, I moved to a less crowded area, checked my phone and I was relieved and happy that finally I passed. Had I not passed, that would have been it. Like I had decided if I don't pass this time, I'm gonna put an end to this advancing my career goal. Another challenge I like to mention, that was a few years ago in my role as an IT service management officer, implementing ITL framework to transform IT operations. One of the main challenges was um, how this framework could seemingly make their job more laborious or bureaucratic, or worse, increase their workload unnecessarily. This was a common perception across my team, and they were quite vocal about it. Uh, To address that challenge, um, I wanted to make sure that people become more familiar and knowledgeable about what ITIL is. So I designed and delivered an in-house ITIL foundation training to my whole team. I invited over 30 plus people, including my CIO. And it was interesting to see after the training how willing and enthusiastic everyone was. That really helped me to implement ITIL framework successfully in such a short space of time. Based on what I have experienced as a challenge, um, one thing I would say is that if you're looking to advance your ITIL journey, I recommend you make a plan and do one step at a time. Pick up a class or cert that is suitable to the role you're performing. I recommend you speak to your manager and seek out opportunities to perform or shadow different service management roles. This will definitely help you to gain more experience and knowledge. I'm a frequent visitor to Excelos website that has a lot of useful information. So it is my go-to place. If you want to learn more or latest and greatest thing within IT service management, I strongly recommend you visit Exelos website. From the manager perspective, now, if you are looking to adopt ITIL, um, it could be the process, practice, you know, whatever. I strongly recommend you focus on people. Take time to understand where they are compared to where you would like them to be. Invest time in building relationships with the people. In my experience, tools, framework, process can be efficient and streamlined. But if people are not on board with your concept, you're guaranteed to fail. Um, And needless to say, one of the guiding principles, which is my favorite, start where you are. uh, Start with the people you have. And if needed, take time to educate them about the framework benefits, and you will be surprised how far you will go with ease and harmony so people can find me on linkedin Rina brambert dash barot that's my username and they can also find me on twitter under um, a handle multiple hats club it's it's kind of my favorite thing as a as a person i wear multiple hats so uh yeah join me uh join me there on twitter
3: hey so this is actually again i hope you uh, enjoyed that and now let's get back to your regularly scheduled podcast and we're back with the power of radio. We have suddenly magically uh, brought uh, two new guests into this episode. And joining me to discuss that interview with uh, Raj are uh, two of my good friends and uh, uh, very recognizable figures in, uh, in the ITSM community. Uh, first, we've got Simone Jo Mo. Uh, Simone is uh, an independent consultant, uh, a recognised uh, industry thought leader. Uh, she's the editorial director of the era of humanising IT docu series. Uh, she's contributed to various frameworks, uh, including Idle Force High Velocity IT. Um, she is she does some really cool and interesting things around melding uh, organisational change, empathy, ethics, art. Uh, of various formats uh, and in fact uh, Simone is also uh, someone who's who sold photographs uh, by the by. Um, she's appeared on the I, I guess your your photos have uh, appeared on the cover of books. Uh, you're an artist, a painter. I'm sure you've probably dabbled with music uh, at some point just knowing you for who you are. Um, but she's a she's a really great person and uh, you can follow a lot of her work, uh, whether that's uh, i t or non-IT related. At uh, simonejomo.wixsite.com, uh, and of course, uh, she's available on on LinkedIn and various other social media platforms. Uh, so, Simone, welcome. Did I, did I miss anything off that bio that that might be salient to this that conversation?
1: Was kind of huge. I feel tired listening to it.
3: There were a lot of words there. I need to
1: retreat into my studio and do something with all of that. (laughs) Uh, Joining
3: Simona myself is uh, someone who's, who's um, not a stranger to our Axelos podcast. We, I'd love, I'm delighted to welcome back James Finister. Uh, James is a practice partner at TCS as part of the enterprise agility group. Um, Also a keen amateur photographer for those of you who follow him on various social media platforms. Uh, James has previously appeared on episodes talking about mental health, um, and as a uh, philosopher, even talking about uh, our reaction to service robots and why we might be fearful of them. Uh, but he is a keen um, amateur, I, I guess. Farmer would farmer be a, a, a an apt phrase? You certainly keep a, a lot of animals in uh, at home. Uh, yeah, so I mean, like- I,
2: I'm setting up. I'm suffering at the moment, actually. I was goat wrangling over the weekend, Sean. <laughs> it is not a, it's not a pleasant task. Fair enough.
1: I, I'm, I'm just wondering if you have to use crocodile dundee techniques to do that.
2: You pretty much do. There were trying to hold them down.
3: <laughs> or, or, like show, the, show them the big knife. Show them the machete. That sort of crocodile dundee technique. <laughs> uh, well, it,
2: it was clippers. It, 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 it was manicure time
3: such a great good day. But both both my guests today uh, and myself, we we are all um, photography enthusiasts uh, of uh, at of various uh, degrees. Um, I certainly started uh, sort of my photography journey um, uh, when I got engaged. I happened to pick up my father's old Nikon DSLR camera and started playing around with it. That you know one thing led to another, and before I knew it, I'm now neck deep in Luminar AI. uh, You know, watching YouTube tutorials on how to achieve cool tic- uh, effects with uh, Photoshop and, and what have you.
1: Uh, I like how you said I picked up my, my dad's old camera and the first thing he said was DS- uh, <laughs> DSR. And I'm thinking, digital. Hmm. My first camera was actually in a box brownie, for God's sake. <laughs> Real film.
3: <laughs> oh, I remember those. I remember those. I, I even remember my dad dropping his camera into uh, the Danube when we were visiting. Uh, I forget which city it was, but we were visiting some city and he dropped it into the Danube. It was not a happy holiday, that one. Anyway, let's talk about Raj's interview. So uh, as a, as uh, folks know, this is the second half of, that, of this episode. Uh, both of you have had a chance to listen to... Uh, what Raj had to say, uh, not only as a photographer, but also as an entrepreneur and small business owner. Uh, Simone, I'll come to you first. Uh, what we're trying to do here, as, as you know, is um, take some of those lessons we, we listened to in, in Raj's interview and see how we can apply them to IT and IT service management. So what was something that stood out from Raj's interview that you thought that's an interesting thing and we can see this in our IT organizations?
1: Yeah, I think uh, just even right from the start when you were talking about uh, and he was talking about his story about where he was and where he went to and how he changed his careers, um, you called it a very courageous decision. And I I think there is that, that we need to take the courage to uh, take a deep look at our roles what we do within the industry, how we do it, and are we still happy? That was the biggest thing that came out of that for me. And it, you know it i I actually left the corporate world at one point to chase new ways of working and try out different things and went off to work in clinic, et cetera. And when I came, and um, what I realized during that period of time was that the world I left was the one that needed the work that I was doing. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So I ended up returning. So I think but returning with a wider perspective on what has to be done. And the fact that he uh, talked about, I like the travel side. I think my mum was actually a wedding photographer. So, you know, definitely the bug was there. But what I really liked about when he was talking about why he chose that or where he went with other travel photography and so on was the journalism aspect that really popped out for me because I'm one that loves stories and we know that stories are the best type of engagement with our people in our teams or with our customers or when we're trying to win investment for a project and see a photograph tells a story you know there's the visual communication is very powerful and I've often said words are how we understand language, culture and people. Books are the medium or the way we, you know, the text is the medium. But a single picture can really encapsulate a moment that words can't always convey. So I think when, as leaders and managers, when we're trying to communicate something with our people, really get to what is the story and what are the kinds of visuals that will help them understand what the story is about. So I think that comes into like value stream mapping as well. You know, we're building our storyboarding and our storylines and I think the visual side of it is just as pertinent and in some ways even more powerful because it's the first few seconds that grabs their attention into coming into that story.
3: That's really interesting because I I, – I noticed that about my working style. Ah, uh, you know uh, how that changed in the ten years prior to my getting married, and the ten plus years after I, I got married. Because I, I look at that point of getting married or point of getting engaged as my sort of entry into photography, and I feel like I've become a lot more of a visual communicator. You know, I I, I won't look for words on a PowerPoint slide or, or or some or even when writing a document. I look for. A visual metaphor, I look for stock imagery that communicates what I'm trying to say. You know, picture says a thousand words and all that sort of stuff. Absolutely. So I, I, I definitely think that's a, that's a really good point, Simone. Um, James, um, w- what was a, a, a takeaway that you had when, when listening to Raj?
2: So I tend to mind map when, when I'm listening to v- v- these sessions and, and with Raj's, when well, I started off with his name in the middle, by the time he'd finished speaking, I had creative professional. In the middle. And I and I think that's a very powerful expression. And if I, if I think about the people I most admire in life, they probably all fit into that element. They're either creative people who approach being creative in a really, really professional way, and I want to come back to that point, or they're professional people who bring their creativity into the workplace. And I think large one which came over to me which i think a lot of people in the workplace don't get is creativity isn't another word being slapdash for being amateur it it, it's hard work being creative and behind being creative there's a lot of very hard work learning of techniques um making mistakes you know and and again another word big letters on my mind map as well But to be creative in the workplace does require us to bring a lot of courage into the workplace. Uh,
3: That's that's an interesting point. Uh, I mean, the whole the whole reason for me wanting to do this series is is to talk about how creativity is a human trait. It's not necessarily only software developers who are creative, or only people who design user interfaces who are creative. As human beings, we we're all creative, but that creativity needs different outlets or in some cases, maybe it just needs an outlet. Uh, you know, I, I've certainly worked in a lot of places where um, creativity was frowned upon. And, I, you know, I don't think that's a very pleasant type of environment to work in personally. But even in those sorts of situations, you can find ways in which to be creative, uh, a creative way in which you could uh, sequence the, the work or approach your work or something like that. The work itself might not be necessarily very creative, but you can be creative in how you approach your work, for example. Uh, so that's a good point. Yeah, the, the, the distinction between creative and professional, or the, the, the amalgamation of that of those two words, is, is an interesting point. For me, I think one of the first things that jumped out, uh, and I'm, I'm going to try to pick a, a, a different one as well, not just to echo what, what you and Simone have said. For me, one of the things that really stood out. And speaking as a as an ex consultant, and who knows, maybe in the future I'll go back to being a consultant. Uh, but speaking as an ex consultant, where he talked about how he tries to steer a prospect away from just the cost element of what it'll take to do a shoot, and try to focus them more on, you know, the the outcomes that they want to achieve, you know, the value they're trying to get out of having that professional shoot. Um, as as an ex consultant, you know, I. I saw, I've been part of so many conversations where, of course, budget is a factor, right? A lot of our IT investments are thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions. You know, we're talking big numbers. Uh, But there's a difference between the customer starting from a point of view of, we want the low cost solution versus a customer saying, we want a good solution. And now now let's work out how to come to a low cost point. Um, And I think hopefully the consultants among us Uh, in the audience, I mean, uh, who are listening to this can take that away as well, that, you know, how do you steer your uh, prospects, your customers away from conversation just purely focused on cost and bring them to the point of, you know, this is the outcome. This is the value that we want to be able to achieve. And then, within those constraints, work out what is actually achievable. Uh, I used to talk about, you know, the the Starship Enterprise syndrome. A lot of customers would start off by saying, you know, I want the holodeck, you know, uh, you know, I want this magical place where everything, everything in my imagination can suddenly become true, before they're slapped with that sticker shock, and then you know, trying to bring them a little bit grounded towards reality and saying, okay, what are you actually trying to achieve here? And let's explore the ways in which you can achieve that. And then we'll try to figure out what are the options and therefore give you a range of costs that you can pick from. Um, So that was something that I took away from that conversation.
2: Um, that's a good point actually. And I don't think that just applies to consultants. I think internally, if we're trying to sell ideas, do things differently, Again, yes, the bottom line matters, but sometimes it, it's getting to that emotional connection, which you know Raj made a big point about. Yeah, I, I remember once and trying to get people to move away from figures to what we would now call an experience level agreement, where we're talking about how are you going to feel if this service is delivered as as, as it's described?
1: Definitely. I think uh, when you were talking, actually, uh, there was a line from, um, and it actually comes from profiling, and it says, somewhere between reality and the twilight of imagination. And this is where, (laughs) (laughs) exactly. Um, And that's the sweet spot, right? That's the sweet spot we're trying to find with them. Um, You know, carving that creative and joyful future actually needs a space in which you have the time to explore and practice that idea with them and get that expression happening. I mean, creative and innovation, uh, you know, are about finding unexpected solutions, right? You know, to the obvious problems, or maybe it's finding the obvious solutions to unexpected problems. And this is where that connection, or as we might say, the outcome experience economy has developed very much these days. And finding what are the realistic expectations, because that can be really difficult. As creative people and in IT, we care so much, we just sort of want to give it over. And so that sense of over-delivering is really dangerous. Um, But what we can do when we're trying to capture the nature of that moment or keep our finger on the pulse with them is we need to learn the signals that are leading up to what they're expectations are or how they are sitting with you on that. When you can learn to engage your emotional intelligence and your empathy within the discussion, that's when you can start reading the room. That's when you can start reading what what are they giving off. Um, You know, that that short list of the things that we can do and have that, that's great, but I really loved it when Raj was talking about it was their story See, we're we're there to help them write their story. We're there to help them make it real. And I had that exact same experience when I was doing the editorial directing with the docu-series with Humanizing IT. Um, That whole era of Humanizing IT, that's a massive topic. And you're actually taking someone else's idea, what they think this is gonna look like and be at the end of it. So that when their audience watches this, that it is a motive, that there is a feeling behind it. There's, there's a complete engagement within that storyline. And that was probably, uh, as a consultant, I was going to say, there's never such thing as an ex-consultant. You're always going to be <laughs> guiding, no matter what job you're in. Um, but to take someone else's idea and make it real requires you to engage in the relationship with them. And Raj said something really important. You've got to bring them along. They have to be part of the process.
3: Yep, absolutely, absolutely fair point. Um, let's uh, let's do another round robin uh, of some of these things that stood out. Um, I'll go in reverse order from last time. So, so James, I'll, I'll lob this over to you. Um, uh, another point that stood out uh, in in the interview that you just heard with Raj.
2: Well, well, perhaps something which I, I like to think I'm above. Uh, I know some some people um, are, are suckers for what Raj described as Gaz, gear acquisition syndrome. Oh,
3: you, you, you that stole that one desire, from me.
2: That desire for the latest and greatest kit, um, which I used to suffer from. Um, I, I like to think I've, I, I've um, weaned myself off it to some degree, but you can't help me about that from an IT perspective as well. You know, whereas you and I might, Salivate over the latest pictures, the new Leica Q2 monochrome camera, and the latest dish of black and white photography, as I may uh, have I, done.
3: I, I think that's just you, James. <laughs> uh, no, no, I'm just joking. Go ahead.
2: Go ahead. But yeah, you know, at the same time, oh look, it's Idle Four. We've got to do Idle Four. It's Agile. We've got to do Agile, and it's so easy for us to think the latest tool, the latest technology, the latest framework is going to make us successful. Now, there's no doubt at all that kit matters. Yeah, I, um, but as Raj said, there is no bad kit out there now. Uh, you, you can pick up a, a mobile phone, mid-range, low range, which probably has a better camera than you and I were using 10 years ago and paying 500, 600, 700 pounds for. Um, and by the way, one of the great things about things like that is they let anybody take relatively good photographs. They may not always help you take the great photograph, but I think the great revolution in photography is that more and more people know that they have the courage to take good photos. You can say the same about frameworks. I told that a lot of, I nearly said mediocre, um, <laughs> suboptimal organizations get to a point of safety. But I, I think to really exploit the high-end thinking, you know, it, they have their uses. But you know, I, don't, I don't wander around all day now. Um, with, with my digital 300 mil lens and three other lenses in my in my bag all day. I do occasionally, but 90% of the time, I've got either just my mobile phone or Sony compact camera, and it's good enough for 90% of the time. You know, you'll be familiar with saying, what's the best camera? It's one you've got with you at the time. And, and I think that's very important to us. We shouldn't be using technologies and frameworks clutch um and think it's going to do all the work for us the heavy lifting is still all about people
1: yeah james that you what know, you've just said then is so critical um the one of the things when i <laughs> i love the whole gas. Scenario that Raj brought up, um, you know that investment balance is really about what we need, not necessarily what we want. It still needs the the room for us to, you know, grow, but do that in the right way. The biggest potential we have is actually already within us, and our ability to mix those frameworks and bring those technologies together. We've got the brains there, but we're not always looking at what capability we have that exists in the organization. And also that'll come back to skills as well. You can't do everything on your own. You need to look what are our skills and capabilities across the organization, not just within one, two, three teams in IT even. You know, we we need our industry colleagues as well, you know, encouraging people to, uh, branch out and ask questions of their trusted colleagues in the industry and what projects and what you can learn from them in doing that. And when you say, yeah, what I've got is the camera I've got with me at the time, um, one of the questions when I, when I had my, my very first uh, photo exhibition, some of the questions that came at me were, you'll recognise it, what camera do you use? The first question was always the technical one. What camera do you use? And I'll say, irrelevant. Because when I put that exhibition together, when I was taking those photographs, yes, the technical quality can matter depending on how you want it to be presented. But what I was capturing was what I saw, what my perspective was, what was my view, what was the story I saw in that, and what was the story I wanted to tell. And I think the best organizations today, the ones that are going to not just be sustainable, but thrive, are the ones that really understand how to pull their potential together. Discover what it is and pull it together.
3: I, I, although, although James, I, I wasn't annoyed that you took the, the, the gas uh, um, uh, point away. I, I I'll offer a little bit of a counter opinion on this one. When we start, when we think about enterprise IT, you know, th- there's a couple of things here. When we think about enterprise IT, we need to think about future-proofing our investments. So whilst at this particular point in time, we might not need the best of breed technology, we have to also look at what our planning horizon might be. And when we might look at, Re look at what sort of technologies we might need to run our enterprise IT, and whether the cost of switching away from a, a particular solution or a particular platform uh, might be really high, then you know th- there are there are certain cases in which you might want to go with best of breed. You might want to. You know, take the pain of the additional investment, which might lead to sort of lack of investment in other areas. But there are situations where you might say, right, you know, we need a best of breed solution here. We need to invest in something that's cutting edge rather than mainstream today, because we anticipate this might be a use case. And nobody has a crystal ball, or rather, we're all crystal ball gazing. Nobody knows the future. Um, so I think I think there is there are some edge cases. Uh, going uh, using the photography an- an analogy, you know, some photographers want to print their photos in really massive formats, and they need tack sharp imagery and and so on. So yeah, absolutely, they they need the best gear for it. And and so there are edge cases to that, but I I do also support what both of you are saying that for a large majority of our listeners, large majority of uh, enterprise IT organizations out there. The best of breed solution is possibly the wrong investment to be making today. Um, but every everybody's journey is different, and everyone's got to figure out that uh, that journey, that learning curve for themselves. Um, Simone, uh, one more point from you. Uh, what, what what else stood out in in Roger's interview?
1: Um, I think part of it was also too about. Um, how you want to be perceived, how you want to be seen as a professional. Uh, I think his journey when he was first talking about, you know, his first wedding might have been in the, um, the mid-2000s and then it was actually later uh, when he learned from those experiences. And I think that learning from our experiences, learning to become Uh, that professional and also the fact that he continues to learn. And I think that really fits in with our experimentation, having the psychological safe space to do that, uh, creating opportunities in which we can play and experiment maybe with the new technologies and see how it fits and what's possible. And for me, that discovering of what's possible is how we will move on to realise our potential. Uh, But that's only possible, and I guess it comes back to his earlier points, that only becomes possible when you're connecting with the people and you're sharing your knowledge. So that, it's really interesting. People want to go straight to the tech and experiment, but I want to bring back to that point that you have to be connected to the people first and how you're connecting and who you're connecting with in order to gain and share the knowledge so that you can get that wider network and support uh, for what it is that you're trying to do and how you're trying to become.
3: Well, I suppose that also applies not just to practitioners and individuals. It also applies to managers, right? You need to be able to connect with your staff. You need to be able to help them explore their potential. Um, you need to be able to give them the space to grow and learn and make mistakes and and all that sort of stuff as well. Uh, it's that's a fair point. Um, I'll I'll close this discussion out with with. A last point, which I think Simone, you were just starting to edge towards. And I was like, oh no, I don't have very many points left. Um, one of the things he talked Raj talked about, is maintaining relationships and connections with a wide network of professionals. And in our IT and IT service management community, there are no uh, there is no dearth of meetup groups or local interest groups. There are groups at uh, at a national level, whether that's an ITSMF chapter or organisations like SDI or HDI. Um, There might be uh, uh, special interest groups run by technology vendors for uh, user groups. I mean, sorry. Um, I think what uh, a really important thing that is sometimes overlooked is the power of those networks, the power of that networking. I certainly regret. Uh, to an extent, not connecting with uh, ITSMF UK or um, SDI or HDI earlier in my career, um, because I can only see the the power of those networks now, uh, and 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 I can speak to how much they have helped me in my career after I connected with them. And so I'd say, especially to any younger listeners out there. Uh, if if we do have younger listeners, I I still don't know if we do, but certainly younger listeners or new entrants into our field explore some of these communities. Yes, some of them require subscriptions and and memberships and so on, but what you get out of those uh, relationships, what you get out of those networks is tremendous. Sure, you have to put in some effort, you have to make the time to go and meet them or, or take some time out of your busy day to attend an online webinar, whatever it might be. But what you put into it will be magnified tenfold coming out. And uh, in, and you will see your, your career going in new and unexpected ways as you start to connect and, and network with these organizations.
1: And surprised by where those networks might take you that are actually beyond your particular industry or role that you find yourself in. So this is where that mixing of what you learn can take you into other areas, right into HR, sales and marketing, or as it is into fields like photography and other creative uh, endeavours that actually do apply to what you do now. It helps the way you think and decide and how you see things.
3: Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I mean, okay. I, would be, I would be remiss here to, to not mention uh, my Axelos. So uh, Axelos does have its own uh, membership platform and where we share a lot more content than you'd find in, in the various books and training and so on. So, you know, I mentioned H- HDI, SDI, ITSMF chapters uh, around the world. Uh, certainly Axelos has one. Um, you might have one in your own organization. Uh, you know, you might have a a local Slack group that's talking about photography, or a local Slack group, uh, or a Teams group that is talking about, I don't know, latest pop music, or or it, people f- uh, having a jam session over Teams or whatever it might be. But those human connections, that networking, opens up so much of your potential. Uh, sorry, James, I'm, I'm, I'm going just to start mean, to say something. Yeah.
2: So, so now, I was just going to add to that as well something I've learned. Professionally and creativity wise, is but there are some big names out there, be it in photography, be it in IT service management. I know it's not quite the same thing. Um, but you can reach out directly to some of these people. And in the show notes, I'm probably going to include a couple of links to people like Mark Greenway. Mark Greenway is a Michelin starred chef. And yeah, yeah, I chat to him about photography. I did the conference presentation with him a few years ago about how he managed his team in his restaurants from, from the staff down to to what you and I might think is on the lowest member of staff, the guy who cleans the plates. But to Mark, he's really important because no plates means no service. And um, and I think it, you know, we can reach out to these people. They they are more often than not, very willing to give their advice, particularly if your interest is more amateur than it's competition to them. Yeah, and and obviously that goes to for you, me, and Simone as well.
3: Uh, fair point. Fair point. Um, let Let's uh, Let's close it off here. I mean, we could we could spend another half an hour talking about the the interview and and sharing our experiences as well. Um, but just keeping an eye on the clock, I think you know this is as good time as any to to uh, wind up this uh, this episode. Um, James, uh, for people who want to uh, contact you, as you were just suggesting, or, or f- follow you on, on various uh, platforms, what's the best way to do that?
2: And I was going to have an Instagram account, which I forgot about. Um, LinkedIn initially to contact me or james.finister at dcs.com. And if you're on Facebook, I highly recommend joining the Back to ITSM Facebook group. Where you'll find myself, Simone, yourself, and various people like
3: that. Yeah, good shout. Back to ITSM is an amazing group. Uh, just for for those of you who are wa- wanting to join, just please be aware that there, we, uh, the admins have put in a little questionnaire at the begin to uh, that you have to uh, fill out uh, to be granted entry. It's sort of you know do you do you abide by the rules and terms of the group and all that sort of stuff. Um, but Please make sure you fill that out and, you know, getting entry into the group isn't isn't an issue. Um, Simone, I think I may have flubbed the website URL when I was introducing you. But for those uh, of our audience who who want to find out more about you, the work that you do, or even the, the, the IT or the creative work, if I can. <laughs> no, it's all creative. <laughs> uh, the IT and the non-IT creative work that you
1: yeah. do. Yeah. Um,
3: where can they find you?
1: Just dub 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 dot com. I'm also on Instagram and uh, LinkedIn, and I do have a Facebook page. Uh, James has already mentioned our uh, group affiliations that we have, and yeah, we're we're all very sociable beings. Uh, strangely enough, even though we most of us seem to be introverts, as a lot of creatives can be, but um, you will see. Yeah, just join us there. Ask whatever questions you have. Uh, we're all very supportive in trying to help other people do what they do.
3: Absolutely. Um, for myself, um, you can find me. Uh, so I do have an Instagram account, but it is a locked one because I I share a lot of photos of my kids and and and, and so on. So it's not uh, a public uh, account by any means. Um, but you can find me on LinkedIn. Um, you can. Um, uh, Find me on Twitter, at Bloreboy, uh, B-L-O-R-E-B-O-Y. Uh, although I'm not particularly active these days on, on Twitter. Um, but uh, you can also drop in any feedback or, or questions you may have to any of us. Uh, via ask at axelos.com. Um, and that email will find its way to me, and I'll be able to share that with uh, Simone and James. So, um, Simone, James, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, to our audience, this is the first part in a multi part series on creativity and creative professionals. I hope you enjoy the, the slightly different format of this episode. Do let us know your thoughts. Uh, ask at axelos.com. And um, I look forward to bringing you the next one in this series, hopefully, dropping in a few weeks. So uh, until then stay safe wash your hands and remember for hopefully in your part of the world the vaccine is just around the corner so don't flub it up now
2: presented by axelos